I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this episode is Ben Harper, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer of an eclectic array of musical styles. Ben is known for his guitar playing, his singing, and both searing and intimate life performances and some social activism thrown in. He's been nominated seven times in various Grammy Award categories, winning three in the Best Pop Instrumental Performance, Best Traditional Soul Gospel Album, and Best Blues Album. And he's also worked with and produced some of his heroes and legendary artists such as the Blind Boys of Alabama, Charlie Musselwhite, and Mavis Staples, as well as touring extensively around the globe. Ben has a diverse family background as the music he writes and plays. His dad was of African-American and Cherokee ancestry and Russian-Lithuanian Jew. Jewish heritage on his mom's side. Ben grew up around a ton of music and spent a lot of hours around his grandparents' music store, the Folk Music Center in Claremont, California. I've spoken with Ben a few times over the years in his and my various career incarnations, but it's been at a minute or 10. Ben, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to see you. It's great to see you again. Now, you're actually in, in Paris as, as we speak, and I know that you're, uh, you've got a whole bunch of uh, European concerts coming up this summer. How is it to be back out on the road? It's both surreal and rewarding and not a moment taken for granted. Not that it was before, but it's a renewed appreciation, I would say. I mentioned you growing up around music, and I know you picked up the guitar at, a, at an early age. H how old were you, and what was your childhood like around that music? Yeah, I think my first guitar was, um, my mom just couldn't stand me putting another scratch in her beloved Martin guitar. So she went and, she went and got me a nylon string, a beater. When did the slide guitar become the focus of your attention? The slide guitar became the focus in my late teens. It had always been a sound that stuck with me as a kid. Growing up, I grew up in the music store there out in Claremont, California, Southern California, between L.A. and Joshua Tree, small town called Claremont. And my family has had a music store and museum there since 1958. Hmm. It's been open almost 65 years. And, you know, of all the instruments from Egyptian oud to um, a Russian balalaika, the sound that stuck out to me, even as a youth, five, 10 year old, 12 year old kid was the sound of the lap steel guitar. That was what was crying out to me as far back as I can remember. If you think back on it now, I mean, you just said it was crying out to me. Can you describe the feeling of, of hearing that sound and what it did to you inside? What it did was it, it struck me as the closest sound of any of the instruments under that roof or that I had heard. It, it struck me as being the closest to the human voice. And it just dogged me. It haunted me in a wonderful way. And then the players, the, the purveyors of that within that sort of Inland Empire region would come in. David Lindley would come in, sit and play for hours in the family shop. Um, Stan West, local uh, Inland Empire steel guitar legend would come in and play. Patrick Brayer would come in and play. And, and these are, these guys are just absolute heroes. Ry Cooter would drop in time to time, not to mention a host of other wonderful mm. people from Jackson Brown to Leonard Cohen, Taj Mahal would come in often. Wow. And so, and not that all of them were steel guitar players, but they were all of deep influence. But if we're talking just about the steel guitar, there's an Inland Empire sound. Chris Darrow um, is another, you know, Chris Darrow wrote a song that really helped launch my career 
called Whipping Boy that is on my first album, Welcome to the Cruel World. And so between Lindley and Chris Darrow, Pat Brayer, Stan West, these were cats that would come in and would let me at the age of 14, 15, just sit at their, sit, sit in front of them and watch what their hands were doing. What an amazing opportunity as a, as a young musician to watch and, and, and take in the breadth and, and, and the depth of uh, all these guys, because they've all got their own deep stories as well that they tell through their music. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. And there's a transmission after a certain number of hours of sitting in front of that, that vibration and that resonance and that frequency. There's a transmission that starts to happen, you know, at the speed of sound. It just goes right in. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the, the first time you and I met it's about 20 years ago, early 2003, my twins, Sam and Luna had just been born and you came in and did a set on my old radio gig at KCRW. And you were on a roll at the time with the, the Funk Brothers documentary and you just helped Jack Johnson get his first record deal. And I, I remember we compared tattoos as well as the, the, That's right. the emotions around becoming fathers. Uh, and two questions out of that. First up, how has being a parent influenced your music and the choices that you make around your career? And as I mentioned in the opening, you've collaborated with just a couple of legends throughout the years, as well as many other amazing musicians. You've had a couple of band projects as well with the Innocent Criminals and Relentless Seven. You're a busy guy. How do you decide on the various projects that you take on? So if you can sort of untangle those two questions. I love it. You know, being a parent opened you wide, opened you up to the world in a very, as you well know, very specific way, in a way that nothing else has in my experience. And it plugs you right in to a very specific meaning and a very specific relationship, a universal relationship, a relationship with something that is, it's beyond God, it's beyond genetics. You know, it's, it's beyond any sort of universal law. I mean, it's, it's them. Every time I look at them, I'm born again. And is in our parents too, you know, and to have that multi-generational reach to explore and define one's own life has been incredibly uh, rewarding to me and inspiring both musically, lyrically, spiritually, personally, you know, I've always felt like um, I can touch any one of my six kids for good luck and it works. You've done a lot of benefit work through the years as well, uh, from helping to get out the vote to working with uh, the No Nukes group, Little Kids Rock, which yeah. helps bring music education to disadvantaged kids. I know that you've also got a, a whole relationship with skateboarding that's been a big part of your story as well. Yeah, I've always loved to skateboard. Keeps me sane, taught me how to fall in public. It's been the best, best thing I've ever done. <laughs> I remember seeing you uh, on one of the occasions that we bumped into each other uh, was over at the Village Studios in LA yeah. and you were in one of the larger rooms, I think. I think you were rehearsing for something and uh, you were just skateboarding across, uh, you know, one of the larger rooms there. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Greenberg loved that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship and history with skateboarding? Yeah, I grew up, uh, as I mentioned, in the Inland Empire in Claremont. And one of, the, one of the first and oldest skate parks that had opened up at that time, one of the OG parks was called the Upland Pipeline. And I'll tell you, my friends and I would get to that Upland Pipeline on Saturdays and Sundays from the ages of eight to 14 if we had to walk, run, ride bikes, skate there, I mean, any, you know, it was Claremont and Upland are, are adjacent, but it was still a good two and a half miles. And for a 10 year old, that's real in the, in the mm. Inland Empire heat, but we'd make it there 
And um, it just opened up an entirely new universe to, to our youth collective as far as commitment, discipline, and the risk and reward that is so much a part of all of our lives. It started right there on that plank of wood with four wheels. Mm -hmm. Do you take a skateboard with you when you hit the road? Anywhere I am, there is a skateboard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To double back if I can, the collaborative process, you can only put, push yourself so far as far as influence and inspiration. But when you get in a room with some of those people you mentioned, like Mavis and Charlie, John Lee Hooker, it flips that switch, lights you up in a way that throws you into a future you didn't know you could arrive at until you were in the room with those individuals. And it's really been special, the, the, those collaborations. Rick, Ricky Lee Jones, Ringo Starr, just, it's been crazy, crazy. It's the best, it's the best part of the gig, man, the collaborations. How do you choose who you're going to work with and when you're going to do the band, when you're going to do something solo? Yeah, that's, that's always intuition. Well, it's two part. Um, you know, the legends call you for the most part. Otherwise I'd be knocking on doors all day. Cause there's so <laughs> many people, you know, knock, knock, knock. Hey, uh, Mr. Mr. Simon, Mr. Paul Simon, don't you need some lap steel guitar? You know, I'd be hawking my wares every which way. So it's nice when your phone rings and that is one of the most exciting. I never know who's going to be on the other end of my phone when it rings. Mm. That's always exciting. And then there's times where I, you know, I'm making the requests. I'm doing the, the knocking. Most recently, I have a record coming out called Bloodline Maintenance. Um, that's coming out July 22nd. And then after that, I have another record that I have yet to title, but I've recruited some folks for that. Shelby Lynn is singing with mm. me on a track. Jack Johnson and I are doing a duet on it as well. And I, you know, it's nice to, cause I had been on a couple of Jack records. So I was, it, it was, it was time to, to, to make good on that one. Not make good on it. Cause Jack and I, you know, we've been the, we've been as thick as thieves from day one, but it's, but, but it's, but it's actually more, it's, that's what's supposed to happen. Like, I mean, I've been having duetted with Jack on his records. Like he should have, he should have, I should have already asked him, you know, right. Right. Because we're brothers in that way. I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what you guys came up with. Um, you know, these past couple of years, what with the COVID pandemic and the loss of touring have been particularly difficult for musicians. And mm -hmm. uh, I know that the work is coming back now. We're the last to get back to it, really, aren't we? Yeah. How did you personally use the time? I used the time in one way, in the same way that we all did, is to figure out what the hell we were going to do. And then the second way was to remain creative. I had a record on deck that was going to come out anyway that I had finished before the pandemic, an instrumental record called Winter is for Lovers, myself and a guitar. And that had been done, God, mid-2019. Mm. So that was slated to come out in 2020 anyway. And we stayed the course. The good folks over at Anti Records wanted, they, they were, they were um, motivated enough to still get it out there. And they felt in those times, as did I, that music, it was important to still put music out into the world, even in challenging times. So I was able to release an instrumental record uh, and was able to stay the course in my writing process. It didn't throw me so far off that I wasn't, wasn't able to put pen to paper on a regular basis. Did it shift your writing at all? Did you find yourself writing about different things? Yeah, it did. I went further inside the process than I think I've ever been on this record. Let's jump into these questions. What is your first musical memory? 
my first musical memory is the sound of my mom and my grandmother's voice in no particular order because they were oftentimes singing in the same room, if not the same song. So the sounds of my grandmother and my mom's voice are the first musical sound. They just, it's my, not only my first musical memory, but my earliest memory. My mom tells a funny story. She, my mom used to teach guitar at the shop. Mm. And when she was about nine months pregnant, she was teaching a class and she would rest the guitar on her stomach. Mm. So when she would strum her, the first chords in the beginning of her guitar lesson, I would thump, I would in utero, you know, when kids, when you can start seeing those, you know, yeah. elbows and without fail, she would, you know, when she was later in her pregnancy, I would, she'd, she, we, she and I were duetting even at that young an age. It's wonderful. You know, um, obviously you were around a lot, a lot of music in, in the store and, and at home. What about buying music? What was the first music you bought with your own money? The first music I bought with my own money was Jimi Hendrix smash hits. I just loved seeing another black man making music that resonated so deep. My mom loved Hendrix for one. My dad loved Hendrix. We had Hendrix records everywhere, but we also had Robbie Shankar records. We also had Hank Williams records. We also had George Jones, Dolly Parton, Robert Johnson. Something about Jimmy just struck my youthful attention and fascination. And once again, once my mom got tired of me putting scratches in her Hendrix records, <laughs> she gave me $2 to go get my own. And it was Oops. smash hits. Right. You bought the hits. Yeah. What about live music? What was the first concert you went to without your parents or without adult supervision? The first concert I went to without adult supervision. Let me get this right. Cause yeah, up till then it was going to see Taj Mahal at the barn in Riverside, but that was with family as a kid growing up, you know, going over to the colleges. Actually, the first thing I think I went to as a young teenager was wandering in off the streets to go see Allen Ginsberg at the Claremont Colleges. Wow. Yeah. And that was a, that was a lift. And I got to know Allen later on just a little bit, was able to have some good laughs with him uh, through the Tibet House concerts run by the Thurman family at Carnegie Hall. Um, but the first concert I went to as a young adult would have been Run DMC, Houdini, Timex Social Club and got with the Beastie Boys on that bill. It turned into a riot anyway, and everybody had to run for their lives. But um Wow. Yeah. It was it was run DMC. Yeah, and, and LL Cool J, I think, was on that bill as well. I'd have to check. I'd have to go back. Got it. Well that that's yeah. that's that's quite a bill. Yeah, that was a hell of a bill. And then um De La Soul saw them early on on my own. Mm. They first dropped at the palace. So the earliest shows I went to were all hip hop. Oh no, no. I saw Todd E.T. and the Wrecking Crew in Pomona. That was the first show I went to when they, when they did Bat Around. Where did they play in Pomona? They played at a small club called, um, what was the name of that place? It was, um, I'll think of it. It was just a small little, little shithole club. But I mean, it was, it was lit. Every weekend it was lit. Let me ask you. What do you listen to when you want to dance? So when it's time to dance, anything from James Brown to modern day Harry Styles. Today at bath time with the kids, it was Carlos Santana. <laughs> I'm having a little mental picture of you with the kids dancing to uh, Carlos Santana in, in Paris yeah. this evening. Yeah, it's great. What do you listen to 
if you're feeling sad? If I'm feeling sad, I'll listen to like Mogwai or Howlin' Wolf, um, Radiohead, Anita Baker. Mm. You've made some music videos over the years. Do you have a favorite music video of somebody else's? My favorite music video of someone else's would have to be OK Go. Now, those guys, I mean, they've elevated that to a, an art form of their own, haven't they? They they defined it. Yeah. They basically said the rest of you were making videos, were making art. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Good call, Ben. Um, do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? And it doesn't have to be necessarily a new band, just something that's new to, to you. Yeah, Nathan Graham. Nathan Graham is a magnificent up and coming. He, he's been known for his guitar chops, but he's uh, working out songs all his own. And I think he's going to do something really special. Can't say that I know him. Where's he, where's he out of? He's out of Chicago. Okay. Do you have a band or an artist that you love that you feel perhaps never got the big break they deserved? Yeah, but if I say, if I say who it is, they'll be mad at me for shaming them. <laughs> okay. You know, so I, I, cause they're my friends. You know, I asked this question, obviously we, we have these same questions that we ask everybody. And, uh, it, it's always interesting to see where people sit with this. Cause I think we've all loved a particular musician or a band that we thought were going to be huge, especially in my job. Right. Sure. And, and it's never quite happened. And there's no real sort of rhyme or reason as to why that is. Yeah. It's, a, you know, just that is a fascinating intellectual discourse that in and of itself, is it the art, timing, luck, marketing, perseverance, discipline, a combination of all or none. I mean, really there's a, there's so much to that. Nick, I'm fascinated by the success or lack thereof in, in the industry. Cause God knows I've had both. Mm. I've had my own little version of greatest hits and greatest misses. And it's just all been like this, not to bring it back to me. Cause that wasn't the question, but, um, yeah, I've never met any artist that didn't feel they deserved twice as much as what they had at any level. Yeah. Do you have a band or an artist that you would describe as a, a guilty pleasure? You know, with the invention of the internet and online music platforms, guilty pleasures are a thing of the past. The more out, the better. You know, if you don't have it, it's now just pleasure or more pleasure. Fair enough. And we always wrap up the conversation with this question. How are you feeling right now? Right now, to be back out on tour, to be stationed in Europe for the foreseeable future, um, new record, new couple of records coming out, a label that I'm very excited about on Chrysalis at the moment. Feel And, and just n never mind all that. There's never not going to be a hundred reasons to be frustrated. The key is to find a counterbalance of a hundred to make you content. And, uh, you know, I tend to wake up an optimist. I just don't always go to bed an optimist. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. But man, I mean, look, you get to go see your mom. I can call, I can pick up the phone right now and call my mom. Mm. How good does that feel, right? I mean, we, we got that and we've got that into our, our older age. And someday our kids will be coming to see our old raggedy asses. Won't they? Knock wood. I've just found as I get older and uh, I don't know about wiser, but that gratitude goes a long way. Oh, I like that. Yeah. 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 It's been great talking with you, Ben. 
great to talk to you again. Every let, let's not let as much time. Oh, and thank you for Dallas Green. Oh yeah, thank you. You you exposed me to him, and he has become now a friend, a brother, a comrade. Thanks to you. That's rad. I remember we did uh, the guitar center sessions thing with him, and uh, very cool guy. Matter of fact, I'm gonna get off this and text him. Have a good summer, Ben. Thanks, man. Good to see you again. Cheers. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 